This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Jonathan Harris about his web and data-based art projects, his relationship to time and memory, and the sexuality of the Internet. I've been asking myself the question lately, like, what would it look like if the Internet had an orgasm? Um, What do you think it would look like? Well, I think it would maybe look something like viral content when there's a meme that everybody is all of a sudden staring at and saying, like, oh, my God, this thing, this thing, this thing. Here's Debbie Millman. Artist and computer scientist don't often make it successfully into the same sentence, but in descriptions of Jonathan Harris, they do. We could also add statistician, storyteller, and designer into the mix to get a little closer to what he's up to. Jonathan Harris says his work explores the relationship between humans and technology. His projects include We Feel Fine, where he took the phrase I feel or I am feeling from millions of blog entries and displayed them in an interactive Java applet, which runs a web browser. If it sounds complicated, the end product is intuitive and elegant. So are his other projects, many of which have been exhibited in major institutions around the world, including MoMA and the Pompidou Center. Jonathan, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you. Jonathan, is it true that your favorite meal is duck confit? (laughs) It's funny. It's true. And I actually just tried to make it for the first time just two nights ago. But it turned out a lot more like fried chicken than uh, (laughs) duck confit. (laughs) How do you even make duck confit? It's kind of a gross process. You have to um, go to a butcher shop and buy duck fat in bulk, which is um, when it's kind of cold or at room temperature, is this so congealed. Like jelly kind of. Exactly. Yeah. And then you, you heat that up and um, you kind of prepare the duck by adding all sorts of seasoning to it. And then you let that sit overnight and then you wash off the seasoning and then you boil the fat and then you put it down to a simmer and you let the duck sit in that for about two and a half hours at a very low heat. And it slowly makes the skin very crispy. That's in theory how it's supposed to work. But the kind I tried to make, um, as I said, was more like fried chicken (laughs) and was like disgustingly salty. So I haven't given up yet. I'm going to give it another try. So you grew up in northern Vermont. How has that influenced the kind of work that you do and the kind of food that you eat? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Vermont has always been in my soul and my heart, I think. And uh, my mom's family has had this farm up there that's been in her family since the 1800s. And it's where I grew up and where I'd ultimately love to build a house and live someday. I think there's a kind of simplicity to life up there and a down-to-earth modesty that most Vermonters have. There's this rare combination of quality without affect, which is something that really makes sense to me, like trying to do things very well but not making a big fuss about them. And, of course, being very much connected with nature and the outdoors and the cycle of seasons and the passage of time. I think a Vermont childhood will give anybody those things um, as well as a kind of sense of imagination and adventure because, for the most part, you're designing your own entertainment. You're not purchasing entertainment that was uh, made by others and marketed to you. You co-designed the Vermont State Quarter. Um, how did that happen? Well, Vermont is such a small state <laughs> that um, they they put out a contest for Vermont residents to submit a design for the quarter. This was back in 2001 or something like that, maybe even 1999. A bunch of Vermonters submitted suggested designs, and I submitted one with a Holstein cow standing in the foreground and Camel's Hump Mountain in the background. That design was selected along with four others as finalists, and they ended up taking the Camel's Hump Mountain from my design and combining it with the maple sap bucket of another guy's design. So they frankenstein the design. Yeah, that was a kind of a mixed job, but it 
was cool. We got to meet Howard Dean, who was the governor at the time in the Capitol building in Montpelier and was on the local news and everything. It was a fun experience. So that wasn't really recent. It was quite a long time ago. How old were you then? I was a sophomore in college. Wow, that's quite an astonishingly young age to have the design of remuneration in your, <laughs> in your, on your resume. <laughs> I know. I always had a dream of walking into a job interview. I've never really gone to a job interview because I've always just worked on my own stuff, but I've always had the dream of walking into a job interview and the person asking for my resume and just like, you know, sliding a quarter across the table, but <laughs> I've actually never done that. <laughs> so you've written about how when you were growing up, you considered yourself a more traditional visual artist. And when you were in high school, you describe how you had a field easel and you'd stand around in meadows doing oil paintings while wearing a little beret. So did you make paintings of meadows while you were yeah, in the meadows? Yeah, many, many paintings of meadows. And, really? Uh, and the beret is true? That's... Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had a little, actually it was a little Kangol hat, which I think are pretty fashionable nowadays, but I, I had one starting in sixth grade or so. And I would stand out in the rain and um, have this beautiful little easel. And I had a show of paintings of, I think, 27 paintings of local landscapes uh, my senior year of high school in Western Massachusetts. So you had a love of 27 even back then, or was that just coincidence? I think that was coincidence, actually. Um, but the love of 27 began around that time. So for those that might not be aware, Jonathan Harris has an obsession with the number 27, and he gives you lots and lots of reasons on his website. Things like there are 27 pieces in a Rubik's Cube, 27 is the only positive number that is three times the sum of its digits, 27 is a perfect cube, three by three by three, Um, the sun rotates on its axis every 27 days. I tend to think that probably that number is influenced by your birth date, which is also a 27, right? Yeah, that's where it started, but it actually came more from my mom. Uh, Her dad died on January 27th, 1977, and when he died, it occurred to her to start compiling a list of things in her family that related to that number. You know, her birth date combined with her sister's birth date sat up to that number and ages when things happened and dates when things happened. And she started to become a little interested in it and mentioned that to me one day. And then I started noticing it in my own life. So took it as a kind of hereditary obsession and went with it. My dad's birthday is on the 27th of September, and I've always played 27 in roulette, which for some reason is a number that pops up quite frequently in case you didn't realize that in gambling. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I read an interview with you where you described how much you loved a great big book called The Encyclopedia of Things That Never Were, which was a compendium of all things magical, mystical, and mythical. And this was a very big influence on your childhood and and in your life. Tell us what kinds of things were in the book. It's a book of kind of folklore and fairy tales and legends and basically stuff that feels vaguely paranormal or supernatural in one way or another. And I think I found it really provocative as a child to have a orderly, sorted, labeled compendium of things that seemed unclassifiable. Similarly, there was a kind of secret quality to it, the Mm. sense that most of the stuff in that book was not stuff most people knew about. That secret quality is the thing I'm always chasing, and a lot of the projects I've done since then, even the big data ones that try to find secrets hiding in large data sets that you might not be able to see with your naked eye. That theme of the mystical and the supernatural is actually an interest that's continued in my life And I think it only becomes more interesting to me as our society becomes increasingly rational and logical and technological. It seems like a counterbalance is is needed. 
you decided to go to Princeton and study computer science and photography. Why didn't you decide to go to study painting or to have the intention of becoming an artist? I've always had a kind of funny dance around the word artist, I think. Um, Why? I think it's one of those words that carries with it a whole kind of world of, you know, critics and practitioners and history and uh, conversation and all of this stuff. And I think I've always been more drawn towards just making interesting stuff, not concerning myself as much with how it fits into what other people are doing or some kind of conversation that predates me. And so I think I've always had this omnivorous approach to making stuff where in any given moment I just ask, you know, what's the most interesting response to this situation? And the situation can be being a 34-year-old male in the world in 2014. Like, what should you do? What should you do with your time? Like, how should you spend your time? So, yeah, the computer science thing seemed like an interesting new frontier to me. It was 1998. The Internet was just getting started, and it was something I knew nothing about. I'm not one of these kids who grew up with computers. I grew up in a very traditional way. But computer science seemed like this new set of skills that would be very powerful in the coming years. You were still doing quite a lot of artwork, though, and I read that when you were in college, you first started doing your sketchbooks. Is that correct? Yeah, the sketchbooks started mid-college. Um, I saw a show in New York of Peter Beard's sketchbooks, and I started keeping these books that I'd make by hand and filling them with lots of stuff from my life every day. So you filled them with things like dead insects and pasted plants and watercolor paintings, drawings, writings, coins, ticket stubs, other assorted mementos. What was it about keeping the sketchbooks that was so compelling to you, aside from being inspired by an exhibit that you saw? Why do so many of them? I think it woke me up a little bit to my life, like uh, the process of drawing something makes you much more alert to the world around you. And I, I found that to be very intoxicating to develop this almost daily ritual of adding another page to the sketchbooks. But I think maybe around that time I started this obsession with not forgetting things and um, trying to mark time as it was passing and not letting it slip away from me. Have you ever tried to reconstruct certain scenarios or certain memories or certain um, experiences? I, I spent a lot of time in my 30s recreating my childhood library. And this was prior to eBay, so I had to do quite a lot of sleuthing to find out-of-print paperback books that were targeted to teenagers, mm -hmm. you know, in the 70s. And it gave me a certain sense of, I don't know if it was peace or recognition or a sense of recapturing something that I had lost. Mm. But I wonder if other people that have sort of obsessions with memory, because I do too, have done that as well. I've always found that things can't really be recreated. It often occurs to me that suddenly I'll have an awareness in a moment in life. I remember one specific time this happened. I was, It was back in 2006 or so, and I just started dating a woman named Iris. And we were out at Coney Island on a hot summer night, walking along one of the piers at sunset. And I, I suddenly was struck by this feeling that this was going to be one of those moments that would be seared into my memory for the rest of my life. And I commented on it to her at that moment. And that was true. It became that. Throughout life, I've had these moments. I think everybody has these moments that you suddenly have an awareness that, oh, my God, this thing that's happening at this exact instant is one of the kind of high points of my life. You can try to recreate that thing, but you can't ever do it because the lighting is wrong or you're hungry or you have a stomach ache or the wind is a little too strong or, you know, whatever it is, the conditions are never just right again. 
So I've never really tried that, although I did have a thought when I was doing my project of taking a photograph every day, which I started when I turned 30 and did for a year and a half or so. After finishing that, I thought an interesting thing would be to try to replay that year day by day, trying to imitate the same photo each new day. But there seemed to be something like absurd and pitiful about doing something like that. Oh, I don't think that at all. (laughs) I mean, there's something beautiful, but there's also something like you have a fresh year which is stretching out in front of you like a new thing and you're going to spend that year so flagrantly by trying to recreate something from another year from the past and that seemed very irresponsible somehow like it was denying the novelty of life and trying to cling. So in 2003 you stopped making your extraordinary sketchbooks when you were robbed at gunpoint in Costa Rica. The robbers sawed off the strap of your bag, which held your camera, money, passport, and a sketchbook that you had been working on for over nine months. Um, And after that, you decided that you didn't want to make precious things anymore. And you've not gone back to making sketchbooks since. And you, at that point, embraced code. Do you think you might ever journey back to making sketchbooks? You know, it's interesting. Like, um... A few months ago, I was going through this really stuck period in my life that lasted about half a year. And uh, towards the end of it, I ended up writing an essay about feeling stuck called Navigating Stuckness and posted it on this random tiny little public radio website called transom.org. And and I was kind of shocked by the response to it. I mean, I've received over a thousand emails about it from strangers. And in the essay, I kind of conclude the essay by suggesting to people that what I'm probably going to do next is go back to making paintings and writing things again. And a few of the people that reached out to me after reading it were people that I really admired. There was a academic in the UK called Theodore Zeldin, whose book I read about a decade ago and loved, and some other people. And um, one message I kept hearing again and again from these people I really respected was like, don't go back. Don't go back to the painting. That would be giving up. That the new world is a technological one, and you're one of the few people who has the ability to make work in that world and guide how it evolves. And to not do that would be a shame and a waste. And so I think I was kind of on the brink of going back to painting, but have decided not to do that. Actually, my plan is to re-embrace the internet and start working with code again now. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about navigating stuckness. It's a remarkably candid essay, visual essay, watercolor paintings, some examples of the sketchbooks and a beautiful sort of snippet of what your life has been like since you graduated college, I would imagine. It seems like the essay was motivated by a question your mother asked you. Actually, not a question so much as asking for your permission about her annual, I think, Christmas card. Mm -hmm. And usually she has quite a lot to say about you and All she had that previous year was Jonathan came back from California and it set forth this sense of being stuck. Mm -hmm. First of all, what kind of expectations do you have where you've done this remarkable body of work in just under a decade and feel that that's somehow not enough or that's not good? I don't know if it's so much like that. I think I've always felt happiest in the flow of making something that feels like it's exactly what I should be doing. When enough time has passed without feeling that flow, I start to get really worried and anxious that I might not feel it again. It's not so much about like making a list of things to tell other people. It's more about 
being really fulfilled by those flow states and really lonely and disconnected when I'm not experiencing those flow states. And when it goes on for six months or so, that's when I start to kind of freak out. And then I think the comment by my mom was just a little thing that precipitated that realization, you know, the way mothers can do that. They just know just the thing to say that kind of... <laughs> to set you forth yeah. into a major depression. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or like they, they can see where your weaknesses are. Right. And th- it's yeah. not that they point them out out of malice. It's just that they're tuned to them and they know that there's something there. Most people wouldn't even notice that it's something, so they wouldn't say anything about it. But, right. but mothers know. So. <laughs> so when you graduated Princeton, you had one of those experiences where you weren't entirely sure what you wanted to do. And then you ended up winning a fellowship to Fabrica where you really first started using data and code to make art. Mm-hmm. And you made some really extraordinary projects. Uh, Word Count, which is a visualization of the 86,000 plus most frequently used English words and 10 by 10, which is a project that every hour automatically selects the top 100 words and pictures in the world based on global media coverage. And just curious, which is an anonymous question and answer system, all of which are still running, by the way. I've went to all of them. I even put in a question to the Just Curious oh, cool. <laughs> site and, and asked if there were if there was intelligent life in the universe. And it was, I guess, a very badly worded question because people kept writing in things like Chicago or um, Earth. <laughs> huh, weird. It's good that you at least got real questions. That project has turned into a den of vitriol and spam since <laughs> since launching it. Now, uh, yeah, I got three got three expenses. real answers <laughs> yeah. within the first 15 minutes of, of posting the question. Cool, cool. Um, you see those works now looking back at them as your sort of big data phase. What made you decide to stop using big data as a medium? A few things. I think one, I was just getting really burned out on screens and I felt like my life was passing me by and I was just sitting at tables the whole time. And so I wanted to get out into the world and have some actual life experiences. So that that was a big thing. I also started to find that the big data work was a little bit shallow at times. And the types of insights that were coming out of these projects were sort of statistical and numerical and metric, but they didn't feel emotional or um, revelatory in any kind of way. They were more like the kinds of things you would say at a cocktail party to sound witty, as opposed to things that would change the course of your life. So I think I was just curious to try to go in a different direction and see what the real world was like. In 2007, in your TED Talk, you stated at that time that you weren't interested in telling your story, that you wanted to tell other stories. So in May of the same year, you decided to spend nine days living with a family of Inupiat Eskimos in Barrow, Alaska, in the northernmost settlement in the United States, hunting whales, which is a thousand-year-old tradition. That type of whale hunt provides the community's annual food supply. Um, And I really want to talk to you about this project because I found it incredibly poignant, incredibly powerful. What was it like spending those nine or ten days with the Eskimos? It was cold. It was boring. It was tiring. It was stressful. It was fascinating. I don't know. When I do a project like that, I love your work. The lesbian porn project would be Which also I in this. Can't wait to talk about. <laughs> would also be in this category. I kind of enter a weird state of mind. It's almost like a translate state of mind where I'm like, okay, for this period of time, you know, the next ten days or whatever it is, 
doing this project. I'm not checking emails. I'm not thinking about my family. I'm not thinking about my clothing or my friends. I'm purely in this space, and I'm really just acting like a proxy for my camera and my recorder, almost like a biological operating proxy. And my interest in both of those projects was to try to behave a lot like a computer would behave, so following certain rules, recording information in a very structured way. Every now and then, the physical discomfort of the cold or the hunger or whatever would come up, but it was almost like a meditative process of just um, like doing this thing. So you documented the entire experience with a sequence of 3,214 photographs, beginning with the taxi ride to Newark, photographs of your boarding pass and the view outside the window in the airplane, and ended with the butchering of the second whale seven days later. What was it like to watch a whale being butchered? Very abstract. It was uh, really that yeah. was not what I was expecting you to say. Yeah, it was surprisingly not emotional or traumatic in any way. I mean, it was almost like watching a hillside being excavated. It was so large. The whale was forty-two feet long and weighing about forty-two tons. It was more blood than I'd ever seen, but because of the quantities, it didn't even really register as blood at that point. It was just like looking at mud puddles that happened to be red. And the process was so efficient and so well studied by the Nupiat Eskimos that it was just a matter of like blades working and things being hauled across the ice and put into piles and taken away on snow machines. And it was all very efficient. So it didn't feel emotional in any way. And it was so cold that there was no smell at all either. The photographs of the way that the well meat was apportioned was actually quite gorgeous. It seemed as if the butchers were artists in and of themselves in the way that they were able to carve up this animal, only leave the jawbone, and this is what feeds an entire tribe Mm. of the Inupiats for a year. Well, I think when things evolve to be their most utilitarian over a long period of time, they end up having a beauty to them because there will be a neatness and an orderliness and a sense to anything that's that practiced over time. And so I think the beauty you're referring to is just something that comes out of uh, a system that's been well-developed and has evolved over many, many thousands of years, actually. I read that one of the purposes of the project for you was to experiment with a new interface for human storytelling. What did you discover? Well, I was really interested in the idea that a story doesn't have to just be linear, but that there are many sub-narratives that can exist within it, and that if you expose the right metadata and if you give people the chance to choose the kind of DNA of the story, then you can allow the viewer to extract arbitrary substories. So I noticed that, you know, all stories have people, they have topics, they have colors, they have times. Uh, in the case of the whale hunt, they had excitement levels. But each story would have its own criteria depending on the nature of the story. You know, it's it's back to that idea of finding secrets, like what are the hidden things that connect us in the world? And what do storylines have in common and what do people have in common? And The Whale Hunt was an early uh, attempt at trying to surface some of these hidden stories um, that exist within a larger thing. So before we get to the lesbian porn experience, I want to talk to you a little bit about what happened after the MoMA commission of the piece, I Want You to Want Me. Because after that piece, which was quite beautiful, I saw it when it opened at MoMA, which was an interactive piece about online dating, you fairly abruptly decided to leave New York and traveled cross-country and ended up in Sisters, Oregon. 
and in the Navigating Stuckness essay that we talked about before on Transom, you describe what happened at that point, and you write, I burned through projects and people, devouring a series of relationships that never seemed as interesting as my work. I was full of pithy insights about human emotion to spout at cocktail parties, but I started to notice that my data-based insights did very little to help my actual relationships. I began to grow suspicious of data. My insights felt increasingly superficial, and though they made me sound clever and witty, they didn't do too much to help me be kind. The world's love affair with data was just heating up, but mine was cooling down. So at 30, after all of this success and attention, you leave Brooklyn to go to Sisters, Oregon and moved into a little cabin in the woods all by yourself. (laughs) Do you think you were impacted by so much success at such a young age, or was this just more the sort of sense of post or post-project depression. (laughs) Yeah, it could have been any number of those things. I mean, I remember at that point feeling really burned out on New York City and how everybody felt like they had read the same books and seen the same movies and had the same opinions, and it felt really hard to feel special, I guess. I think I've always had this need to feel special or feel different or feel like an individual. I think on the Enneagram, I'm I'm an individualist, and I think it, it started to feel hard to be like that. And so I thought, okay, if I sever my ties from this kind of connected cultural milieu and just go out and live in the woods for a while, that'll be an interesting new direction. And uh, and it was. I mean, it felt like uh, fresh air after a storm <laughs> being out there. Now, did you go there with the intent of actually starting another project or did a photo a day happen more organically? So I went there with the intent of building Cowbird, which is what I started building when I went out there. And the photo a day idea came a couple days before leaving New York, sitting in a cafe in Brooklyn, and I thought that would be a good sidekick to have during this very long, solitary journey, just having the process of doing a picture every day. Now, you talked about how at that time you had this sense that the greatest creation that a person could have is their life story. And life is a story that you're writing as you live and thinking of life itself as a creation. You also talked about how you felt that you'd been very cocky when you were young and that you were beginning to see that things can only be learned from life itself. And these are the things that really matter. So what matters to you now? I think... uh... Being intentional matters to me now. I make a lot of lists, and I've um, many times made lists of what are the things that matter to me and how do I want to spend my time. I think quality matters to me. I've been reading a lot of Zen philosophy over the last couple of years, and that's something that I think translates really well to all of our lives. Like, whatever you're doing, do it as well as you can. And if you start with very small things, like brushing your teeth well and making dinner well, then that starts to kind of move out in concentric circles into bigger things in your life. And then you, once you say, well, I've, I've brushed my teeth really well and I make my dinner really well, but I notice that my job is, I don't like it at all. So suddenly you say, okay, that's the next thing that has to change. And then, so you change your job and then you say, okay, I don't like my job, but this town I'm living in, I really, it doesn't suit me. And that, so very quickly it kind of takes over your life until you've examined all the things in your life with this lens of quality. Like, is, is this the highest quality thing I can have? It's a lot about focus and attention, I think. I think spending time wisely, being awake, being alert, being aware, those things matter to me. I think being a kind person to the people around me, whether I know them or not, the world uh, 
is very much influenced by how people behave and people's behavior travels out like ripples in a pond to the other human beings that surround them. So I think it's really important to to behave well to others. Yeah, I mean, I, I have this very clear vision of what I'd like my days to look like at some point in my life, and I've had that vision for many, many years now. And so I, I try to make sure that the little steps I take each day are moving me closer to that magnetic north, which is a more distant thing. Did you feel lonely when you were in the cabin in the woods by yourself? No, I, I wouldn't or use scared. the word lonely. Were you ever scared? No, not scared either. It felt like such a relief, actually. <laughs> so you posted 440 photographs, and you wrote pieces to go along with each of the photographs. How many photographs were you taking a day to get to the one that you felt was worthy of posting? I'd say anywhere between five and 300, depending on the day. Did it start to feel like you were becoming too self-conscious about it? Yeah, it started to feel like the purpose of my life was to make these photographs <laughs> and to get myself into situations I could write about. And that's fine in a way because it makes you live an interesting life, which is good. But you also start to feel like a performer, which is a weird thing. Well, and it ended up taking on a real viral role at the time. People were writing about it and talking about it. and You know, it's one thing I think all writers struggle with this, um, how sacred to keep the people and places in their lives or how much to mine those things for material. I think that's something writers have always struggled with. But an added dimension in this one was the fact that there was no delay. Something would happen, and then within hours I would have to write about it to people. So a lot of things resolve themselves with time, I think. But when you don't have that time, sometimes things still feel too raw, and you don't want to have to give your official statement on the matter <laughs> until <laughs> things have had a little time to sort themselves out. So one of your most recent projects is called I Love Your Work, which is an interactive documentary about the private lives of nine women who make lesbian pornography. It consists of 2,202 10-second video clips taken at five-minute intervals over 10 consecutive days. The clips are intentionally 10 seconds long, following the format used by pornography sites that offer free teasers enticing viewers to pay to see more. First of all, what even piqued your interest about the lives of nine women who make lesbian pornography? Well, I, I was, think I was in this phase of my life, the whale hunt being the first move in this phase, where I was kind of identifying things in my life that I perceived as being deficient in one way or another, and then choosing projects that would force me to confront those things directly. So in the case of the whale hunt, you know, I'd been spending all this time writing computer programs and sitting at desks while, like a lot of my childhood friends in Vermont, were building houses and having kids and hunting deer and running farms and doing kind of very like manly things. And so I felt like having a hunt experience would be an interesting counteract <laughs> for the life I had been living. And likewise with the porn project, you know, I was raised in a pretty conservative kind of waspy way in New England and went to fancy schools. And my family is a very traditional family in a lot of ways. And I was kind of brought up not to really talk about sex often not even to talk about sex with the person you're doing it with. Uh, <laughs> and I thought it would be an interesting experience to insert myself into the w lives of people for whom sex was extremely normalized to see how that would affect me. And it, it, it did affect me. It really changed the way I think and talk about sex, just those 10 days did. But as for the project itself, logistically, it just kind of came across my path. I did not seek it out. I met somebody at a party who told me he had just taken a job to be the scriptwriter for a new series of lesbian porn for the Internet that was being made by a lesbian lawyer woman who wanted to become the next Hugh Hefner of the lesbian porn world. Jinsey, right? Jinsey Lumpkin, yeah. Yes. 
And so she was a kind of bright and shining in her mid-20s who was just leaving her law job to fulfill this dream of becoming a porn mogul. And she's actually done that in the last few years. I mean, she's she's really like a well-known sex figure now in the world. But she was very young and just starting out at that point. And we had dinner and uh, got along really well. And I pitched her this idea, and she thought it was interesting. And she proposed it to her actresses, and they thought it was interesting. And so kind of went from there. But a lot of the stuff I do is just following instinct, you know. Obviously, like anybody, a lot of ideas and possibilities end up crossing your path. You know, should I go here? Should I do this? Should I talk to this person? Should I date this person? (laughs) And a lot of it is just kind of listening to your gut and thinking, like, what's the most interesting move at this point, given everything else? And do you feel that the work would have been different if you had interviewed nine women who make heterosexual porn? Yeah, definitely. The women that were, that are in like, I Love Your Work, you know, I think about half of them were gender studies majors. I think almost all of them consider themselves feminists. And they actually refer to the type of porn they make as feminist porn. And feminist queer porn in, feminist, in many ways. That's right. In, in, for, for many of the women. That's right. And so for, for many of them, this was a political act. And it was a statement about their bodies and about their free will. It was not a matter of being exploited or trying to be titillating. A few of the others I would call like pure hedonists. And they just loved physical pleasure and sex and felt that doing porn would be an interesting addition to their lives. And then a couple of them were after more traditional things like fame and attention and stuff like that. But that was very much the minority. Most of them felt like they were doing porn for political or personal reasons. The entire piece is about six hours long. And so I bought two day passes so that I could watch the entire thing. And it didn't occur to me until after I'd finished that I should actually go to the website where all of these women sort of live, where you can buy their videos. Mm -hmm. And I didn't buy any of the videos, but I did look at the photographs. And I couldn't believe how different they appeared on the website where they were selling their services and how they appeared in the film. They were so real, so dimensionalized and... You lived with them each for an entire day. So do you sleep in the same room with them and wake up with them? Mm-hmm. And Yeah, I would usually sleep. I mean, sleep. they were naked half the time with you. How, how did you manage that? And they were beautiful. Yeah, um, they were very open with me and very trusting of me. And I was very respectful of them. And I think that was established very quickly. I'm not sure how. I think, I don't know, maybe something in my nature. But they all felt pretty comfortable. And um, yeah, I would sleep usually on a mattress on the floor. And I would wait till they went to sleep. And then I would sleep. And then when I heard them rustling in the morning, I'd wake up and try to film them waking up. And then I was with them all day, no matter what they were doing. I read that the biggest thing you learned is how extremely normalized sex was for the women that you were filming. Was that a big surprise for you? It was, just because I had never been exposed to people for whom sex was so normalized. And, you know, certainly the people I grew up with in my family, like I said, it's something you kind of don't talk about. It was a revelation to me to see how much a part of normal life sex could be and that it was okay to talk about it and it was okay to have, like, weird things that you're into and probably other people have the same or different weird things that they're into and that's okay to talk about those things. It doesn't have to be some big secret. And so I felt like that was a hugely beneficial learning for my life just as a person. And uh, I hope that for people who see the project, it also has that effect on them. Oh, I thought it was revelatory. It was revelatory because most heterosexual porn that I've actually seen is so performative, whereas this seemed sort of integrated into the women's lives and just the way that they were able to 
walk around in the world in their bodies, it felt incredibly strange that yeah. to, to be able to view that kind of freedom. Yeah, well, I think, you know, porn obviously is all about creating fantasies and images, and so is advertising. And to connect it back to what you started off asking me about, you know, the encyclopedia of things that never were, I mean, that's also a book about fantasies and images and illusions and things that are larger than life and have legends associated with them. And there's something about, like, entering into one of those things and seeing it from the inside and then telling people and showing people what it's really like from within that's really helpful because I think those fantasies and images, as inspiring and transportative as they can be, they can also be very intimidating and very damaging to a lot of people who feel like their own lives don't measure up to these images that surround them. Right. Um, and so I think, you know, seeing those images deconstructed uh, is a very empowering thing, whether they're porn images or ad images or any, any images, really. Well, the, I love the idea that you could be confident and comfortable in yourself and not be perfect and mm-hmm. not look perfect. That There was sort of an expectation that went away in watching this. Mm-hmm. But you've said that for all the porn and the sex that exists on the web, the web is a remarkably asexual place. And I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that. Sure. Well, yeah, I said that in the context of writing an essay about how people behave on the Internet. And uh, the language that's used to describe people on the Internet is users, not men or women or trans or whatever. It's just users. And so people are very generic. The Internet is not a body place. It's a place that you enter into as a human mind and you interact with other human minds. And your body is only an interface that helps you conduct that interaction through clicking a mouse or typing on the keyboard or whatever. As such, I don't know that minds have gender necessarily. I think gender is a very body thing. I think the internet is is like this orgy of minds. Um, It's interesting to see what minds do when they have an orgy without bodies. I've been asking myself the question lately, like, what would it look like if the internet had an orgasm? Um, What do you think it would look like? Well, I think it would would maybe look something like viral content. When there's a meme that everybody is all of a sudden staring at and saying like, oh my god, this thing, this thing, this thing, it's like a total focus and attention. I mean, you know, like a lot of people in their normal lives are very distracted a lot of the time. And, you know, in meditation, they call it the monkey mind, like jumping around from topic to topic. For a lot of people, sex and specifically orgasms are one of the rare moments when that monkey mind quiets down and you're really present with the one thing that's in front of you. And often that monkey mind comes back like just a few seconds after that finishes. Do you think that we're going to ever reach a time where we do sort of have that singularity as it's been described where we're sort of one with the technology? Yeah, definitely. I'm a big believer in that, and I very much see our species becoming a single organism. That organism is made possible by the Internet. I don't think we're quite there yet, but I think that will be our future, where the planet is one feeling, sensing, thinking thing, and we're each carrying on our individual lives within that, going on dates and buying groceries and sleeping and brushing our teeth, but we're also part of this bigger thing, kind of like cells in your body. You know, as the cells move around, they're probably not conscious of the fact that they're in a larger body. They're just worrying about cleaning up the cancer or talking to the cell next to them or regenerating or whatever. But of course, we know that our cells are within this larger thing, which is our body. And I think the internet is very quickly helping us see ourselves that way. And so then it's a really interesting thing, like, well, what type of organism will we become? Will we be a kind and generous organism? Will we be a scornful and jealous and envious organism? Will we cannibalize ourselves by destroying ourselves? Or will we reach some prosperous future existence? (laughs) Um, Will we leave and colonize other places? You know, these are really interesting questions, and they're not decided yet. And I think the future 
nature has a lot to do with what people believe will happen because there's a kind of self-fulfilling nature to things in the world. And so as we think about what organism are we becoming as humans, it's really useful to put forth really beautiful visions of what that organism could look like because then those visions will be more likely to come to pass. Do you think that there'll be a time where we could achieve immortality? Yes. Conscious definitely. immortality, not just mm-hmm. yeah, immortality think, through our world. I mean, even now with stem cells, if you have an embryonic stem cell and get that put into your body every few weeks or so, you will basically not age because your cells will keep regrowing themselves. And there's lots of big pharma companies that are already studying this stuff and have stuff in clinical trials. And I think aging will be cured at some point. And then there'll probably be a huge gap between people who can afford not to age and people who will age and die as usual. And this will be the new luxury, not having the nice product, but having more time to live. Imagine what that will do to our memories. Yeah, yeah. And then you'll have a lot more time to relive those early years, maybe, and try to recreate them because you'll have more time to play with. But that'll introduce a whole new set of interesting problems and questions. And a lot more interesting conversations. (laughs) Jonathan Harris, thank you so much for being on Design Matters. You're welcome. To learn more about Jonathan Harris, go to his website. It is a magnificent one. Number27.org. That's N-U-M-B-E-R 27.org. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainy Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store. 